the saddest part is yeah. that all of that lovely weird banter <laughs> about setting the levels i mm. didn't record so we're just recording now that's better i don't think people would have liked that no you think they would have hated that it was boring i mean yeah are you worried that we're getting boring Oh, no, I'm, I don't think that's a major concern, at least not yet. It could become a concern in the future. It's weird. I, I feel... I feel, you feel uh, more boring? I don't think we're getting boring, but um, <laughs> I feel like for a good eight or nine months, I would just sit down with you, and I'd be like, it always works. We can do talk about whatever. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little more anxious. Maybe it's just because maybe more people are paying attention, so I just... Feel, what, what do you think's sort of changed in the last few months? There's though. more people are paying attention, maybe. So it just feels like we ought to be upping our game somehow. I mean, we've been talking about upping our game a lot, and and then just sort of like sitting down like this, you know, with uh, not much of an agenda. It's a little daunting. Yeah, but look, I think from what I recall, our um, I think that our last few episodes have been really well received. But not just the ones with the guests, because that's a little bit different. But even when it's just me and you, the last one we did. Um, sort of tete-a-tete, Demir and Shaddy, I think um, I de- there was definitely some plaudits. I yeah. don't remember what we talked about. I but. do. I mean, because I, I was amped up for that one. That one That one was no problem. That was uh, Game Stonk. Oh, know? yeah. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, that was exciting. But, but, but So then what's the issue if the last one was good? Well, the issue is this, is that, that there's our second, is it the second, the third impeachment, the second impeachment is going on of Trump. And I, I've I've just been completely distracted with... with uh, "Quote unquote real work." So I have I've I'm I've followed it through the headlines, and uh, it's it's that's about it. So um, I mean, part of that is because I don't think I think the the you know in the in the in the sense that one tries to read the news in a way that's a, a good use of one's time. Maybe it's wrong of me to assume that there's just no there's not even a snowball's chance in hell that he's going to get convicted. So why pay that much attention to it? It just seems almost pointless. I don't know. Is that is that a, is that a bad yeah, way to well, think about it? So, so my only concern about this episode is precisely this: that like you, I haven't been following the news. I've probably been following it even less than you. Insofar as I know that there's an impeachment proceeding, but I don't even know what the headlines are. I'm vaguely aware of Nikki Haley um, saying some things that people were getting excited about. I don't know how important that is. But I, I feel like to to focus on impeachment right now, like in terms of like my own mind space, it seems like an utter waste of time. Nothing good can come out of that, I don't think. So there, like, I'm not even interested. I don't even find it to be an interesting story. He gets he, he gets impeached. He doesn't. Does it really change much? Uh, I'm not sure. But I think it's what we purposely try to avoid here on Wisdom of Crowds, which is the day to day noise that has no bearing on the bigger cultural, political, and religious questions that I think we're most interested in. I mean, one so way. To, I mean, you know, one way just to think about that. Jump in before before we move on to to other things, though. It's it's there's like a meta question. Uh, it's quite possible we're missing the the biggest story ever because, in some ways, even though. I guess I'm somewhat convinced that there's no way they're going to convict him. If they did convict him, it would be a really important story. I mean, it would be it would be certainly at that point uh, an indication of a major fraction in the Republican Party. Um, and then and then one of those things that that I guess sort of has been rattling in the back of my mind again. You know, it's sort of the the background noise of of this podcast since we started it is. Um, you know, the question of uh, 
let's say the party were to fragment right now and, you know, Trump has been sidelined off of social media and all the rest of this. And then he is uh, somehow the Democrats managed to convince enough of their colleagues to convict. And uh, therefore, he is, I guess, barred then from ever running again. Now, it's interesting. I mean, you know, given there's that story in The New York Times that he actually was sicker than uh, than was let on by COVID. Maybe he won't even survive four years. Right. But it's it's then it becomes uh, a meta question. It's also interesting to me, which is, you know, can can the the discontent and the like the the Trumpian flavor of discontent and how will it last without Trump? I mean, obviously, I saw Max Boot wrote a column again, just saw the headline. I didn't bother reading, but it was something along the lines of Trump in office was the greatest threat to democracy. Tucker Carlson is the current greatest threat to democracy. So again, I mean, how is Tucker Carlson the greatest threat? I didn't read. (laughs) It doesn't even make any sense. Well, at least that is is part of the the what's it called the um, the zeitgeist these days, right? I mean, we've both been sort of writing about this. It's 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 uh, it's this idea that that uh, if only if only you know the people weren't riled up to irrationality, rationality would would somehow reassert itself. Um, I mean, I, I think that's. Nonsense, but sometimes I wonder. I wonder if we were to, you know, make Max Boot emperor of the world, and he was able to, to basically silence all the voices of irrationality, and there were there were no, there was an, a possibility to just, you know, just stop, just silence all the forces of reaction. Whether people would then just go back to just being, you know, that the post Cold War happy Americans that you know. That there was a, some kind of broad center of consensus there that could be reached, and you know the, the old centrist elites could rule, and we'd have nice you know wars of freedom abroad, and, <laughs> and you know all the good stuff that 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 uh, led That's us to this That's what we loved point. about that era. Yeah, right. The wars of freedom. Wars of freedom, and you know, I mean, maybe, maybe uh, I, I just wonder, you know, I. Obviously, obviously, it's a nightmarish proposition that, like, taken to its extreme, that you know, you need to regulate speech to a certain point to, you know, be able to to preserve democracy. Uh, and I just don't think it's going to fly in this country. But you know, again, as you know yourself, it's not. It's not. That's a, a to to see that as a complete non-starter is a very American thing. I mean, Germans, for example, mm. are are quite fine with with regulating all sorts of things to keep completely you know, undemocratic and illiberal uh, voices. And that's worked really well, considering that the leader of the opposition in the German parliament is the far right, supposedly neo-Nazi party, the AFD. So there are limits to the effectiveness of these approaches. Right. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, it's a supply and demand issue. If there's a demand for far right policies, um, you know, political entrepreneurs are going to come out and, and meet that, meet that demand. I just don't know how you get around that when um, people are free to start their own parties and express opinions on a variety of platforms. It's really hard to keep these things um, under the rug or under the table, whatever the expression is. Right. (laughs) Under the table. Under the rug that's under the table. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But like what you laid out is actually extremely frightening. And I think that our listeners should be aware of some of the worst case scenarios, I think that you sort of put your finger on the button. I feel like I'm just like making up like <laughs> a finger on the button, which would be um, the dystopia that would be Max Boot as philosopher, king, emperor. Yeah. 
and um, banning reactionary forms of speech, and he would be the one to presumably adjudicate that. Um, I mean, it's a fascinating idea. And, um, and I think every American citizen has to ask him or herself, do I want to live under such a regime? Right, right. <laughs> that you- is, but look, I mean, it reminds me too of the joke that we had. And, you know, wait, can we, I don't know if we can say this publicly, the Max Boot joke. <laughs> what, like minimum shoe, that one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Max Boot, minimum shoe. <laughs> I hope people appreciate that yeah. little um, yeah. humorous touch. Yeah, um, you know the thing. I it's 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 one of those things that I'd always throw out there when when um, my more liberal friends would be like, I mean, you know, this this ban Fox stuff has has been in the air way before Trump. Well, maybe not way before Trump, but certainly in the last four years of Trump, it's been in the air. And I've always said, like, you know, if if Fox didn't exist, precisely on your supply and demand. Uh, premises, I would found it and be a rich man. I mean, is really what it comes down to. Now, even even though they advertise, you know, like, I don't know, gold and other weird things, I guess, on Fox News. I don't watch Fox News. But, you know, that, that it's it's low rent sort of advertising and, and all the rest of this. Mm. But it's still a it's a seems to be a profitable uh, venture. And yeah, I mean, it's your point is, is like if there's a if there's a if there's a demand for this sort of stuff, uh if uh, yeah, if there's a demand for this sort of stuff, leadership will be supplied eventually. Um, but I wonder, you know, it's it's is that is that too glib at the same time? I mean, there is a role for uh, for leadership to shape the discussion. Maybe that's just impossible today, given given again, I, this is not an original thought here, but given the 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 information landscape and and just in general the 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 way things operate and work right now, maybe it's just impossible to. To, to have that anymore, that kind of, uh, I don't know, tight control over, over, over discourse, right? Well, I think the bigger issue is that people are angry, but they're angry for legitimate reasons. So I think that this is the bigger structural issue here, that the, the anger isn't necessarily unfounded. So as long as um, a growing number of Americans feel that something is fundamentally wrong in our society, we're going to have um, reactionary anti-establishment movements, um, certainly on the right, also perhaps on the left. We'll see how that evolves in the coming years. I guess that's sort of what wokeism is about, although it's kind of odd because wokeism is dominant c- culturally in many respects, at least in elite institutions. So, um, but I feel like what's interesting about populism on these sort of, well, is it, is wokeism really a populist thing. It's more of like an elite sensibility. So maybe it doesn't really fit into this mode of analysis. But the bigger issue here is that people are angry and they have every right to be. And um, to treat, like we always go back to this, the cause and the symptom issue that if we see the Trump years as merely an aberration, we're misunderstanding something fundamental about our current political moment. So people are chilling a little bit now because, you know, it's the early days of the Biden administration. But this stuff is going to keep on coming back if we don't have leaders who actually are um, bold, who actually address the deeper structural issues. Um, and I think what we found out is that even competent leaders aren't competent. This is sort of a riff on my... um Members only piece, piece for yeah. wisdom of crowds, which we can include in the show notes. And maybe this is a good time to do the marketing pitch. Do it, do it. <laughs> well, if you want access to this piece that will be in the show notes, pay us money. 
there's exactly <laughs> exactly and no no seriously guys yeah. i mean you know um there are thousands of you who listen to the podcast we don't need all of you to become members or subscribers but you know, if you like what we do, consider it. Um, you know, what we try to do with some of these members-only pieces that we show the first uh, paragraph or two, and maybe if it whets your appetite, you might want to, you know, yeah, dive in and yeah. see what you, see what you find. I mean, so what I said in this, um, and uh, before I forget, you can do that by going to Wisdom of Crowds dot live slash subscribe okay marketing spiel done good check is it is it spiel or spiel because i think one of our dear listeners brought this up before mark schleifer i think that he thought i mispronounced spiel spielberg (laughs) well it can't be spiel because it's it's steven spielberg and it's spiel (laughs) go on but here's i think there's a it i think it tells us something about our moment that we at least liberals seem to love the idea of competence and we fetishize competence but really when it comes down to it competence is really hard to achieve and i think we're seeing that certainly when we talk about the eu the the disastrous vaccine rollout these are the leaders that um center left americans had been idealizing and say, and saying if only we could be more like macron or merkel or whatever it might be but if we look at the e- and the EU itself, these are supposed to be intelligent, well-educated, well-meaning, well-intentioned. They're trying to be technocratically efficient in all the in all the various ways, but it's a shit show. Yeah. So that yeah. tells us something. Yeah. Well, it's an illusion. This idea of competence, and we we might you know ask ourselves, is competence in any like. In any sustainable fashion, is it even possible in a country as big as ours? Like it's possible in New Zealand, it's possible in say Israel, and they're doing quite quite well with the vaccine rollout there, very well in fact. Um, but a country as unwieldy and as divided as ours is is competent simply beyond reach. And we can obviously have um, different gradations of conf- of competence or lack thereof. So I'm not going to pretend here that Biden isn't more competent than Trump, but still, it's a very low bar. So but maybe that's enough to clear that low bar is maybe good enough for, for a lot of people. Well, let's, 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 I mean, I want to just row it back a little bit because it is something we talk about here. Um, and I, we haven't actually been taken to task for it, but it, I think it's, it's worth digging into a little bit. Um, I mean, people have been taken to task uh, about this, very broadly about the Trump phenomenon and sort of, you know, just in general, the the populist rise, perhaps even on the left. But what is the source of the discontent here? I mean, you know, there was a there was a set of polls that came out. Um, I guess they asked uh, a bunch of voters. I'll try and dig up the link. Uh, they asked a bunch of voters. Um, they listed, I guess, Biden's uh, um, uh, executive orders and, you know, maybe described them in a sentence or something like that and said approve or, dis- or, approve or disapprove. Eh, broadly popular, uh, but uh, all the the asylum border stuff very unpopular, or like you know markedly unpopular, like thirty nine percent approve or something really? like that. Yeah, and so you know the the thing that that I, I just tweeted one quick little thing, glancing at those numbers, I said just important to remember, you know why why uh, how it is that Trump won in twenty sixteen, and and then it's true that so a lot of people a lot was written about about the. Um, the resentments 
and the you know the frustrations of of Trump voters in this way and that way and 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 the rest of it, um, and then you know the flip side, the sort of liberal, almost like you know mainstream, but you know shading into woke uh, narrative is that you know Americans are just xenophobic and racist, and and uh, you know it's that's it's it's that kind of like racial resentment that's driving this. Uh, I think that's way too pat. But it's it's you know when we sit, when we talk about this very general sense of discontentment, yeah you know it, it's I, I wonder I wonder about it. It's it's not that 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 I mean certain people certainly are impacted by immigration and 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 uh, uh, their wages have perhaps been affected and jobs going out and there's there's a kind of reaction against that. But in a way, right? It's it's immigration in Trump's hands was just a call. Just a calling out of the fact that you know the moment we find ourselves is somehow not satisfying that 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 some need wasn't being met by our current ruling elites that they they had somehow maybe just ceased to credibly represent us or something like that and and immigration was just an easy way to sort of map that onto it you know it's it's i i i i don't know i i'm not I'm not an immigration specialist but but i i I sometimes wonder. You know, to what extent it's it's a proxy issue, and in the same yeah. sort of way, I wonder that whether on the left, you know, uh, uh, you know, you as a Bernie supporter, you've 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 talked about uh, you know general sort of inequality and other things, but in many ways, you know, you think about it, it's it's a kind of reaction against 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 the 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 paradigm the like the ruling paradigm that has brought us here globalization the rest of this it's just like no one's st- speaking up for us in a way you know and it's it's arguably uh, a less racist thing even though bernie himself was caught by ezra klein you know saying that that open borders is a coke plot back in the day before bernie was you know put in his place and he wouldn't say that again today um but but you know what i mean it's it's i wonder how how perf- how performative in many ways any issue based discontent is i don't know do you have a sense of like what what the source of this discontent is i think you're onto something that and i think that you've actually been one of the few people if i can sort of just indulge you a little bit who has really um i think identified this so when you made the argument the other week i think you wrote it in one of your pieces for us um you can tell me which one it is but um you basically said that the claims of voter voter fraud and the election being stolen from from Trump wasn't actually about an objective assessment of whether the election was actually stolen. It wasn't meant to be a factual statement. It was a means to signify opposition hmm. to a kind of status quo and to an elite consensus. And the peop- these were Trump supporters who were angry, and it it mattered less what the specific claims of voter fraud were. What mattered more was that these were people who still felt disenchanted um, by the system or by the way of things, you know? And I think that a lot of policy preferences aren't actually about the policies in question. They are signaling mechanisms. And I mean, we've talked about this before in certain ways. I mean, my support for Bernie, as I think you alluded to, isn't actually about policy preferences. Mm. Bernie is a proxy for me. He's a way to signify that I'm angry about a broader set of concerns. So when people say, well, Shadi, do you think the marginal tax rate should be like, I don't know, like 70%? That's not really important to me 
first of all, I'll never be in that bracket. So it's, it's certainly not important for me in a very kind of uh, personal self-interested sense, but I don't, um, for, I also think authenticity is important in a politician. And if you take those two things, authenticity and using a candidate or a politician as a signaling mechanism, Bernie becomes very compelling. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that Bernie isn't right on specific policy issues. It only means that that's not what's fundamentally driving me as an individual. And I have to be honest about that. And I don't want to pretend that I'm someone who has read in detail Bernie's economic proposals and has strong opinions about them. But for most of us who aren't experts in a particular field, I'm not really the right person to adjudicate the economic feasibility of some of Bernie's more controversial proposals. So then it's less of an issue of whether something works. Also, the very frame that the reason we would support a policy proposal is if it works is itself problematic because it assumes a technocratic premise that for a policy to be worthwhile, it actually has to work. I don't believe that policies are only worthwhile if they work. I think policies can be worthwhile even if they fail. So what's what's... What do you think is driving uh, your particular discontent? Like which, which, what element of, you know, well, let's just say, I mean, is it, is it fair to say you, you, you've been uh, politically sentient, let's say, uh, I mean, you, you certainly remember uh, Clinton, but you'd say like Bush was the really sort of opening, like when you really sort of became active, right? Mentally and, and more engaged in things. Right? Am I? Is that is that fair? Certainly, yeah. So yeah, I that's mean, less because of Bush, and that's more because of nine eleven and no, the Iraq okay. War. Sure, sure. Uh, all I'm, I'm trying to get a, a time frame, not necessarily the president. So we're talking, but basically, uh, Bush and Obama, uh, and and after after those sixteen years, uh, you you want to lodge a protest, and Bernie is the is the. Uh, the cudgel nearest to you that's most sympathetic because you wouldn't vote for Trump because that's not your your game. But there's a similar sort of instinct that something's not being done right. Can you can you can you excavate that a little bit for me? Like where's that where's that coming from? I mean, I'll I'll share my sort of uh, you know impulses in this, which are I are, are less tied to politics. It's it's some it's something else with me. But like I don't know. Do you, why don't you go first and just sort of like if you can just sort of think through that a little bit. Something not quite being right is precisely the right way of describing it because it's vague because it's hard. It's, it's not the easiest thing to define where my sense of something not being quite right is coming from. And that's why I think for a lot of people, it's more about a sense, a gut feeling and that's why it's easy to dismiss because we can't always put it clearly in words. It's not about specific policy objections per se. Um, I will say that just as a little side note that I was politically sentient to some extent, but even before Bush. And I, I don't want to go into this too much because it's just like a fun fact and it has no relevance to our current conversation. But I remember in high school, I became known, and this is maybe where I first became known as a contrarian. <laughs> Everyone was vaguely liberal or left of center in 
in an undiscerning way. I mean, we were in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Um, it was an upper middle class kind of context, um, a public school, but a, a very well regarded one. And in that kind of setting, everyone is going to be this kind of standard issue liberal. Not really well thought out. No one really knows exactly why they're a liberal. It's just not cool to be a conservative or a Republican. And they're seen as like stodgy and moralistic. And they're not like a little bit uptight about matters of, you know, um, I suppose sexual ethics or abortion, things like that. And, um, and that was my entry point into my vaguely Republican sympathetic politics in the late 1990s that I came from a more, uh, you know, practicing household religion was a part of my upbringing. And that was a time when Muslims were generally more sympathetic to the Republican Party because of those moral issues. And so there was a discourse growing up, whether it was at the local mosque or Sunday school, that there was a sense of moral moral regression. Mm -hmm. And this was during the Clinton years and during Monica Lewinsky and all that. So I think some of those developments magnified that sense that we were morally apart from where mainstream society was going. And that's the kind of sentiment that I started to express at the lunch table in high school in the cafeteria. Mm. Um, and I just got a rise, I got a rise out of people and I found it fun because I was the only one who could kind of like vape, you know, semi-intelligently express some of the discomfort with the cultural consensus at that time. And um, it just, you know, it was a way to, uh, not to like, I think probably it was a way to stand out. I think in high school, all of us are looking for our own identity. And I think that I... I didn't really fit in entirely. I wasn't like in, not to, I, feel, I wasn't into the loser group, thank God, because I mean, that would have been devastating. Wait, so you became a conservative to not be in the loser group? Is that no, what you're saying? No, 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 they're not related. I'm just saying it wasn't that bad. It's not like it ever got to the point where I was in the lowest social group. Mm -hmm. I would say that I was in the, I was between the lowest social group and like the middling people. So I was in the kind of, um, I was in a vulnerable position. It's sort of like how if you look at the folks who join um, like Islamist movements in the Middle East, they tend to be middle class, but those with frustrated ambitions. Mm -hmm. So they actually have a lot of potential or they think they have a lot of potential, but something is blocking them. Not to extend the metaphor or analogy too much, but I think that those of us who felt like we were at risk of being pushed to, to the lowest rung of the high school status ladder, so we had frustrated ambitions of our own. So I had to think like, what? how can I make myself seem, you know, more relevant or more interesting or whatever? And maybe this was one way. I'm just speculating here. I don't know. I haven't I'm thought about this. I'm just speculating about a hypothesis here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I'm trying to also make a bigger point that I think that's a hard position to be in. But, and but I, yeah. yeah, okay. Go on. Finish. I, I no, was just going mean, to push you then, like, what, what, it, it, is there any connection between that and, and sort of the, the broader, do you see a kind of broader thing at play here that's like more socially you know, broad than that. Like you're the, like, you're like Shaddy. This is all interesting. Well, but. no, I mean, <laughs> I, I could imagine some of your less charitable readers latching onto this, this little uh, confession here and being like, ah, this explains everything. 
<laughs> but here's the thing: it doesn't really explain. Ev- it it doesn't really say a lot about my position now because I think that I don't think that my issue now is um, one of status or frustrated ambition, unless uh-huh. people want to psychoanalyze me or something. Yeah, I think that my discontent comes from actually being kind of content about a lot of things. I told you this on a text message, a private one, uh, the other week. Like I was a little bit, you know, I was a little, I was down about some things the other week, last week, I guess. And I think that part of it is I, I'm very grateful for what I have. I think that, um, I'm content with where I am in, in different aspects of, of my career and my writing. But that also makes, it also makes this kind of underneath the surface bubbling dissatisfaction more striking because it doesn't have a clear source. And that makes me more nervous about it. Hmm. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder if there's a, you know, um, a broader sort of, you know, maybe it's just, it's, it's some kind of, of, you know, uh, product of prosperity, right? I mean, that, that, you know, we're all looking for the oppressed masses, but in fact, you know, America is a very successful society that has a lot of inequality, uh, you know, and, and like racial problems, violence, um, uh, healthcare is a disaster, all the rest of that. But, but whether, whether on some level there's, there's just some kind of something else, I don't know, you know, for me, for me, I, I, I've written about this sort of in passing uh, over the years. It sort of keeps coming up. The, the thing that I, I always sort of I, – I don't, I don't like either side. I've never liked either side. Um, and I, I guess I'm always drawn to uh, pick at things that seem hypocritical and or, um, I don't know, uh, conventional wisdom in a lot of ways. And – I, it started, I, like I said, I've written about this. It started most of all watching, you know, uh, the Balkan Wars in the 1990s. And then ever since then, all of the the kind of, you know, happy talk about democracy and progress and, you know, the end of history stuff has is, is just struck me as off, like like missing something uh, really important about it. I wrote, I wrote an essay in The American Interest uh, years ago now. Uh, that uh, democratic determinism essay, which starts mm. off from that premise, because I remember, I just remember, uh, you know, the, the Balkan Wars were not supposed to happen. You know, uh, Cold War was won, liberal democracy was just taking over, and then what was this? And so the solution was, the, the answer was basically, it's like, you know, well, ancient hatreds, barbarism of a background, backward people, but they'll come around, it'll be fine. And so it's not with any sort of glee that I uh, watch what's happening, but at the same time, it's it's a kind of it's a kind of perverse satisfaction at watching it unravel in a way, and saying no, you had it all wrong from the beginning. You you don't understand why good things that you have are good and how they work. And in so many ways, I've just been sort of trying to unpack, you know. First, on the one hand, figuring out what it is about America that is good. How does it work? Why does it work? What is the role of certain beliefs in the society, both organized, you know, religious beliefs of which I don't really partake because I'm not religious at all, but also the sort of secular faith in America and the sort of mythology and how important it is to to keep some of these things uh, 
you know, in place and, 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 uh, tended to and, um, healthy. I think we've, we've done a terrible job of that. Um, but it's also, you know, it's, 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 it's because all of these things that I think our elites talk about a lot that they think are the holy things are so misunderstood by them and such false gods in a way that also it, it gives me a real perverse pleasure to see it explode in their face. That's, that's I guess, what's driving me. It's kind, of, it's kind of nerdy and intellectual, but this is why, ultimately, I, I'm, I'm not comfortable with the right. Uh, I, I wasn't comfortable with the right when they were, you know, uh, that when they were the champions of these false gods under George W. Bush uh, with the whole freedom agenda and democracy and freedom and horse shit. But, but, <laughs> um, but also, you know, watching it now happen when you have the sort of center left and the broad, like, center, the former center, the former elites, just, they're just talking nonsense. And in doing so, and in being as vehement as they are, they're mirroring exactly the forces and, and giving, giving succor to the forces. And this goes back to, to you know, uh, I thought, which still I think was one of the, the better essays of last year, Aaron Sabarium's essay on, on the Weimarization of politics. I mean, I think it just nails, nails the dynamics so, so well. And, you know, and so, I, you know, even among our friends, I sometimes get accused of, of, of you know, evincing a certain kind of glee as I watch some of this stuff happen. But that glee is really born of, of a kind of... Um, I don't know, just like a, a, a built up years of just listening to stuff that just always struck me as bullshit and that I could never uh, convincingly prove that it was bullshit. So yeah, watching so events think- come somehow, you know, bear this out has been satisfying, even while the whole experience of the last four years uh, longer has been horrifying to watch it all come apart. Yeah, and I've been driven by this somewhat as well, that I think that many of these people deserve a comeuppance because they're so they're they're wrong not just in the obvious ways, because Trump voters or supporters have been wrong in ways that are clear cut and somewhat straightforward. These are people who are wrong, maybe let's say utterly wrong for the right reasons, or maybe that's not quite the right formulation, but they're so they're so rationalist and well-intentioned and technocratic, but also sometimes not technocratic when they descend into wokeism. There's there's a self-righteousness. There's a self-satisfaction. And these are the very people that you want to see proven wrong. So I think that's part of it. I would say that one thing I don't like about our current, let's say, cultural elite, um, to oversimplify, is that there's a certain decadence, there's a certain kind of late stage Roman Empire vibe to it, of people who are so unmoored from what is really fundamental in life. And this goes back to my sort of spiritual and religious preoccupations. I think a lot of this really, for me at least, um, it gets back to the decline of religion. And I, by religion, I mean specifically Christianity in America, but also just more broadly, of, um, I mean, Christianity is the majority um, religion, somewhat, even though that's changing. So naturally, if there's a religion problem in the US, it will also be a Christianity problem by definition. And I think that the being unmoored from the kind of Christian heritage, (laughs) I'm going to sound kind of reactionary here, 
Heritage seems to be a reactionary word, so I hesitate. So many words are becoming it. reactionary these days, though. So I mean, yeah. whatever. Just everything just, is just reactionary. Proceed. Just proceed. Yeah, I think that when you when you lose sight of part of who you are, and I think that you can't understand the American self conception without understanding the role of Christianity. Of course, you know, taking into account that many of many of the founders were not particularly Christian, but you know, still, if we look at it more broadly. And if we look at the nation and, and how, and the role that Christianity has played until the last few decades, Christianity has played more of a role in the American self-conception than say, um, in the German self-conception or the French self-conception. And that matters. And I think that if you lose that, you lose something important about who you are and that affects how, so you have an elite. And I think we talked about this in the previous episode, um, that you, like if we look at the Hollywood, um, if we look at popular culture, it diverges so much from the median voter in terms of basic sensibilities that the gap is actually quite large. So I have a preoccupation with decadence. I liked Roz Douthat's book about it. I think it's probably the, if you want to read one thing on understanding what decadence means and what its implications are for the future of the U.S., I think Ross's book is a good place to start. I also have odd preoccupations about this. I don't, I mean, not to, I don't mean to like make a joke out of this, although it may be perceived as such. But one reason that I can stand dogs is I find them to be a very simple encapsulation of this broader decadence problem. It seems, okay, I don't want to say too much about this because this goes a little bit personal. But like, for example, I mean, there's nothing... I mean, on dating apps, for example, mm-hmm. there are a lot of women who pose with their dogs. Yeah. I find this, I mean, to me, I can't imagine what could be more decadent than this. I, I, I just struggle to understand what is driving these people. And maybe it shouldn't annoy me as much as it does. And I'm just being a bit of a curmudgeon. And certainly I'm a misanthrope. I, I make no um, bones. <laughs> make no bones about it. I make no dog bones dog about bones it. Dog bones about it, yeah. But wh- here's the thing. Why does that... Like, I, Let me try to think about this for a second. Why does that bother me so much? These dog... W- um, the, the, uh, oh, I don't a, know. I mean, it's a... It's a, it's a you know, an economic sinkhole that people put stuff into resources that would have gone to children, perhaps. I mean, that's the standard conservative yes. line on this. Is that it? Yeah, I think that's... It's part of it. It's like we're trying to find personal satisfaction from a domesticated animal because we can't find it in the normal places. I mean, that's certainly part of it. There's a certain luxury to it. I mean, from what I understand, to have a dog, you got to spend a shitload of money like over time. And it just seems odd from a like a, a pro, like a economics maximizing standpoint, why you would want to put a lot of your money into something that is an animal I don't even know what the words are to describe this, but also I think as someone who likes my freedom, the idea that you would have to like wake up at a particular moment or um, like interrupt your social activities with your friends because you have to walk the dog. So we don't have that problem in our friend group. And that's why no one, like if we want to hang out with each other, none of us has a dog. So it's never an issue. None of us have children either yet, (laughs) Shadi. 
So, I mean, I was just going to point out here, you, you are a proponent of, you know, wanting to settle down and have kids. Uh, get ready, my friend. Um, yeah. But uh, where am I going with this? I feel like I've just gotten stuck in sort of like this dog zone in my yeah. own mind and I can't even. But the last thing I'll say about it is, you know, when, when resources are scarce, people don't buy dogs. Right. But wait, we're, we're talking about decadence here. And I mean, I, yeah. I, I understand you, you, you latching onto this as a particular thing, but wh- why is it threatening? I mean, you know, again, sure, decadence. Uh, I, and, and maybe this decadence is making us restless and therefore just sort of, you know, projecting this kind of restlessness onto symbolic protest candidates. I, that, that would be the ultimate decadence, right? That, you know, we've forgotten the importance of self-governance and... and you know, the kind of discipline and, and kind of, uh, you know, virtue that's required of that. So now, well, you know, it, these sort of uh, end of history, hollow men that we are sitting here, uh, yeah, with our look, dogs. But if, Ber- if, Ber- if Bernie is anything, Bernie is undecadent because he is he doesn't have time for bullshit. He has clarity of purpose. He's authentic. So what he what his outside is as similar to his inside like there isn't a sort of cognitive dissonance just like trump very authentic right trump is the most authentic candidate yeah but actually but trump doesn't have so when i think about authenticity i also think about moral clarity i find trump to be very contradictory in a way that bernie isn't bernie is consistent He is who he is. I guess you could say Trump is who he is. And this was always, I think, what people found appealing that he says it like it is, but it wasn't, but there was, it was always utterly inconsistent. So he was, he was open about that and he would go all over the place. Maybe people appreciated that he, there was no pretense to consistency, but I don't think it's quite the same thing. So, I mean, what we're looking at then is, 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 I mean, I, I, I share the, the, you know, I, I'm less, I'm less, I guess I'm, I'm less troubled by the decadence. I, I, I just sort of take it for granted that that's what it is. And I mean, it, it's, it's, and I, I haven't read Ross's book, but if I read some of the excerpts, I think he had in the New York Times or, or elsewhere and a couple of the reviews, I mean, it, it's, he's not that troubled by it either. I mean, isn't, isn't, isn't where the book ends up saying that basically, you know, decadence can last forever or like for a very long time, you know, empires last for a very long time in the decadent phase. It's not, it's not collapse. It's not imminent collapse or anything like that. It's just frivolity yeah. in a way, right? Which is also depressing in its own right that we're going to be on this endless repetition loop being decadent, but kind of muddling through and living, having very high standards of living relative to human, the rest of human history. Yeah. And we'll probably get away with it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess, I guess, I guess I wonder, that's the thing. And, you know, maybe going back to your piece, I I don't have a, uh, I don't want to mess with my laptop since we're recording on it. And I left my iPad in the other room. Uh, Read the, the, the Gene Kirkpatrick quote uh, from your piece, because I thought Mm. that was, that was really Mm. good. I see what you're doing. You're hyping yeah. up the members' content. Yeah, that's okay. Right. Yeah, I think we already teased this onto the onto the Twitters, <laughs> so it's okay. Yeah, let me pull it up right now. Okay. So the Gene Kirkpatrick quote, I presume probably late '80s, early '90s, I think, um, is goes thus: Dramatic quote, reading. Quote. 
the Arab world is the only part of the world where I've been shaken in my conviction that if you let people decide, they will make fundamentally rational choices. Well, so, you know, uh, we can and obviously— people, people yeah. did bring up that she's going—I mean, she's sort of contradicting her own position. So people were like, well, Shadi, actually Kirkpatrick also doubted that Latin American peoples would make rational choices, which is one reason that she supported right-wing dictatorships in a number of countries, right, not just right. in, in the Middle East. But, you know, point. fair yeah. enough. No, that's a good point. But, you know, I think that it's fair to say that if there were— Folks in Latin America did become more rational as the 80s went on. So by the end of the 80s, going into the 90s, uh, democracy spread through um, Latin America. And generally, people weren't voting for Marxists or socialists. They were voting for leftist parties to some extent, some of the time, but center left, you know. So um, the socialist threat was mitigated. And of course, this was coming at the end of the Cold War um, when socialism just simply wasn't as tenable. So I think that it's fair to say that um, when we look back, the Arab world has stood out in many ways for the seemingly irrational proclivities of voters on a mass level. And I think that's what Jean Kirkpatrick is speaking to here. But of course, uh, I personally don't think that voting for Islamist parties is irrational. That's partly what she was referring to in that case. Yeah. You know, I mean, um, the, the only reason I, I, I bring it up is, yeah. you know, not, not just the Middle East and, and, and the rest of that. I mean, we can, we can have a, a long discussion about that, but it's, it's what struck me about that, why I think it was so, such a, a great quote to, to dig up and surface um, right at this moment is, is specifically all that we've been talking about tonight. And that's, and that's this idea you know, you, you just said, and the reason I asked you to say it, you said, like, you know, maybe we can muddle through this for a very long time. But, you know, if if um, if the electorate chooses uh, to actively be irrational in a way, uh, I, our system, you know, Kirkpatrick's not wrong, at least in in passing, to point to the fact that the functioning of our system requires a belief in in this kind of melioristic um, uh, you know, rational based outcome, or maybe it doesn't require it to function, but it's a core belief. Put it that way. You is know it? I mean? Is it though? It is. I mean, that's this is why Rawls is is number one, and 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 you know is is so core to most American self understanding and Europeans. Quite frankly, it's a Western it's a Western conceit. This gets back to part of that thing that that. I was alluding to, which is like part of the the core lie of this superficial understanding of of democracy and and and, and liberalism is this idea that that uh, individuals uh, are 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 fundamentally and if allowed to sort of deliberate, you know that that reason brings the best out and necessarily you know reason and rationality and good outcomes triumph from this. I mean, again, right. I know I know you've spent a lot of time uh, poking holes in that. I mean, I, I disagree, but Demir, I'll what? challenge you on this. Go on. I have a different theory of the case. Hit it. In fact, I'll coin a new term to describe my theory. Go on. In fact. <laughs> So I think that I would call this the theory of the con. <laughs> okay, let me do this again. Okay, okay, Chatty, this is your moment to shine. Shine to fight Rawls in, in the annals, annals of history. <laughs> Good lord! Come on, come on now. Okay, I think that I would call this 
the theory of the conservation of irrationality. In other words, mm. Mm. there is always a constant and high and somewhat high level of irrationality in any given society. What changes over time is how it's expressed publicly. Mm. Totally agree. So you're not challenging me, though, but go on. Okay. <laughs> so the irrationality has always been a major part of of the American electorate's situation, that there have always been millions of pretty irrational Americans. The only difference now is that these millions of Americans have more access to social media, to um, to public platforms. And so we've become more aware of it. We've talked about this. In fact, I think you've made this point a number of times, and I guess I've made it too, is that, um, you know, conspiracy theories. Americans have always believed in conspiracy theories, but we weren't freaked out about it because those people did not have access to the New York Times or the Nightly News, so we could go about our lives and not worry about it. And as long as – like. Does it matter if millions of Americans believe in crazy things if said millions are basically irrelevant? Like there's no way to perceive them. There's no way to realize what they're thinking. So it's like if a tree falls in the middle of the forest and if let's say dozens of trees fall in the middle of the forest or the entire forest falls, but no one is looking at the forest, if you'll indulge my very bad analogy, does it really matter that the trees are falling? Yeah. Yeah, well, so look, this gets back to, to something uh, that we were kicking around earlier. Here, let, let me say this. Um, the other part that I'm deeply tickled by, uh, Max Boot and, and the rest of these, you know, uh, former bien-pensant, like, you know, uh, thought leaders uh, grappling with right now, is that I think one of the core things about democracy— uh, is that uh, is 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 the sense of a responsible elite that is able to channel this stuff? Now, I mean, let's bracket aside whether doing so is impossible right now due to technology. I think that's a that's a real a real possibility. And as a result, given the the sort of uh, the way things are going technologically, maybe maybe it's it's not feasible, or at least mass democracy on the scale of something like the United States may not be possible anymore. Maybe smaller democracies, smaller self-governing units could work. Uh, I don't know, but, but you know, just let's bracket that for a side. What, what's, what's both, where I both sort of agree with the current moment on the, in the max boot side, even though they would never put it this way, and this is why I still scorn them, is that, you know, uh, their 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 for framing of this question is that if we only get rid of you know a kind of a few bad instigators and a few bad rabble rousers you know the inherent goodness of the people will rise through and and you know rationality will reassert itself that's insane but underlying this is is a kind of aristocratic a rediscovery of the aristocratic ideal in democracy which is which is that the mob is a terrible thing that democracy as an ideal, this is why, you know, smart people throughout the centuries have talked about mixed republics and, and balancing these forces that, you know, an absolute democracy is an evil in, 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 in many readings. And so it's funny to watch these people sort of rediscover it, but they're not there yet. They're, they're, they're talking as if, you know, there's a handful of demagogues that need to be beheaded and then wisdom will reemerge. 
and again, this is also what I was alluding to earlier. I mean, well, maybe they're right. Maybe, maybe you know, uh, a more German-seeming, uh, you know, more, uh, um, I don't know, elite-driven clampdown on this sort of stuff uh, is preferable to just complete free-for-all. But as you said, it's not even necessarily working in Germany. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. But, but you know, that's, that's one of the things that I'm also sort of, you know, enjoying in watching this is watching these people who have, I think, a really facile and dumb understanding of democracy rediscover a certain kind of aristocratic ideal and importance of that in, in governing a republic, basically. Um, and, and, and there's something sweet in seeing their, you know, hatred of the mob sort of, I don't know, manifest before my eyes you yeah, know they, they would never put it that way it's almost like honey nectar honey nectar yeah taste it <laughs> no but like their disdain is so palpable for the masses and to be fair i don't like people particularly either and i mean i i mean we've talked about how my low level or sometimes higher than low level misanthropy whether that is um whether that can accommodate my commitment to a minimalistic conception of democracy. So I, and I struggle with this too. Um, but I also, I think there's also, a, I, at least for me, I think that people also sense in me a valorization of the crowd that I, I have a soft spot for wayward Trump supporters. Sometimes they would say too much of a soft spot for them. So because I guess I don't know them. Like I probably, if I spent more time around Trump voters, I'd probably like hate them too. No, I think it's the opposite. I think if I spent more time with Trump voters, I'd like them more. <laughs> totally, absolutely. I mean, wait, I think wait, I think on the individual level, I think people are, are are fundamentally decent. I think that's 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 undergirding for me. I, I think the problem with democracy is that that mobs are terrible, not that individuals are terrible necessarily. Oh, good point. Good, that's know? a really good point. I think so. Maybe let me put it to you this way. I think that um, left well-educated leftist well-educated elites so let me clear sorry woke wokish elites or center-left people in major urban centers i think as individuals tend to be intolerable in a way that individual trump voters may not be yeah yeah I mean, it's an apples and oranges thing, right? Again, individuals versus a mob i mean i i think it is it's it's very right to to point to a certain kind of you know you know, uh, mob-like groupthink that's taken over in, in sort of elite circles here as well. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, just behold what's uh, the, the the turbulence at, 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 you know, many institutions, not just the New York Times. I mean, just, I mean, we're all having conversations offline with uh, with different people who are just sort of, you know, shocked. Uh, I was just talking to, um, uh, you know, it's it's funny, a friend of mine works in government, actually, um, and uh, and he was just, you know, weirdly discovering intellectual dark web stuff and i was just like dude 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 just like stay be careful be careful but you know it's it's just that's like, old school Wait, it is I old mean, school you know, like no but i mean it's 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 i'm just seeing you know he he's he's been really busy and just sort of you know doing a, a uh, doing his work like nose to grindstone so it's a lot of work uh working in you know in some of these jobs and it, it's so he hasn't been paying that much and he's sort of just like waking up to a certain kind of politics that's enveloping him he's like what's going on and he's like looking for 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 answers i don't have a problem with intellectual dark web but i mean that's a, a, a different subject that well, I do well, have many reservations about where that all comes from can, as well. Hmm? But he, he should know where the answers can be found. At our podcast, of course. No, that's exactly what I was thinking. I yeah. mean, he's an ideal candidate 
to um, be made aware of the wisdom of crowds. I think he's aware. I mean, he's a good friend of mine. <laughs> I hope he's aware. <laughs> Maybe he's not. I don't know. You've never talked to him about the podcast? Uh, no, I mean, I send, I, I send him links to stuff. Uh, I don't know if he listens to the podcast, but uh, hmm. in any case. Um, well, maybe on that note, um, yeah. since we're coming on an hour or so, yeah. Um, but we should continue this, and we'll do the bonus episode right now yeah. um, after we conclude. And I, w- I would encourage all of you that I don't know exactly what we're going to talk about in this special bonus members-only episode, but I guess that the New York Times might come up. I know it's a little bit inside baseball, but I'm sure I have a feeling that will come up. Because um, that's been a major theme of some of our um, – maybe it's lame that we care about what's happening, the internal politics of the New York Times. I also want to expand on my misanthropy a little bit. Do it. And, and just in case – I know that's like a big word, but um, misanthropy just means dislike of people. Mm. Let me actually come up. Let me see what the actual definition of misanthropy is for our um, – Okay. Misanthropy is the general hatred, dislike, distrust, or contempt of the human species. There you go. Human behavior or human nature. Everything. <laughs> I love that. Okay. Great. Great. So we're, we'll definitely dive into that. So if you are interested in having access to this bonus episode, please do consider subscribing. Um, you know, at the website link, I don't have to mention it again because I mentioned earlier. Yeah. And we would very much welcome you. And that's where I really offer up my unfiltered thoughts. That's like my no holds barred situation, which will present a number of problems for my career probably in 20 years when I'm being considered for Demir's deputy national security <laughs> advisor, his little aide de camp. And, um, <laughs> and, and like when I will be considered for this position, they will go back. And they will be like, oh, Deputy National Security Advisor Shadi Hamid, what was he saying when he felt no one was listening? Mm -hmm. And then they will go back 20 years into the archives and they will find these unfiltered thoughts. And because we'll be even more woke in 20 years, well, that would be weird. Because if we do become more woke in 20 years, there is no way Demir is going to be National Security Advisor. This is a paradox. But here's the thing, Shadi. Uh, basically the, the, it's a win-win because to get access to these, they'll have to pay back in the future as well. And you'll just be a little richer as a result of it. As Endless they dig up payment all this stuff. into the future. Indeed. Yeah. Okay. All right, Chaddy. Talk, Talk soon. Later, Bye. Bye.